Have you ever given instruction to someone who wasn't listening? Maybe it's a coworker or an employee or a child, and you know invariably that your instructions are probably not going to be followed to the letter. In fact, you're a little bit skeptical to begin with, thinking maybe I should just do it myself. Or maybe you've come to something, some project somebody was supposed to do, and you thought, wow, they really didn't put their heart into this. It showed in the effort that was made that it was sort of halfway done, just a kind of bang-up job. See, the problem is if you don't do something from your heart, if you don't listen and follow instructions, usually it's shown in the work. It's evidenced in what you have as a finished product. Somebody who takes care and listens and follows instructions, usually the outcome is good. Somebody whose work is halfway done, it's obvious that their heart was not in the project. The same can be said of Saul today in our text. This is sort of the moment of no return from Saul. He gets a mission. And God tells him to listen to his words and obey and follow through in this mission. And Saul doesn't. Saul fails to listen to the words of the Lord. And in that way, God rejects him as king. But worse, he regrets that he made him king. Why does God regret that he made Saul king? As we look at this text this morning from 1 Samuel 15, we want to try to answer that question. Why does does God regret Saul as king? So turn with me to 1 Samuel 15, and let's read together. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hevalah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument and for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. 
And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may be bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to, the ha- to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what a, difficult, what a difficult story to see in the life. What a tragedy to see in the life of this man that you called to be king who refused to listen to your voice and instead listened to the voice of the people. 
Father, we would listen to your voice this morning. So open our ears that we may respond and hear you speaking to us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. So, Saul is given a mission. He's given charges. I want you to go and devote to destruction the Amalek, all of his people. Man, woman, child, all of the livestock, everything is to be devoted to destruction. Now, Amalek is descended from Esau through his Hittite wife. You remember that he took a wife from the Hittites to be a thorn to his father Isaac because he had told them not to take from those women. And so he did it to spite him after he had already sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. So Amalek, these are descended from Esau. And you'll remember that as Israel is leaving Egypt and the Exodus, they are confronted by the Amalekites in a great battle in Exodus 17. And there, in that story, as Moses lifted his rod up, Israel defeated the Amalekites. But when his arms began to sink down, they would lose. So they came and they put him on a stool and they had Aaron and Hur on either side. And so they prevailed against the Amalekites. And then the Lord spoke this to Moses in Exodus seventeen fourteen, saying, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God promised to visit the iniquity of this people on their head to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate God. But this, this text is uncomfortable. We've got to admit it. Right? We don't like to think about God who is loving, who is just, who is righteous, calling for the genocide of a people. Wiping out even infants and children? What are we to make of this? How are we to understand this in light of who God is as being loving and gracious and compassionate? How are we not utterly to fear and fall in upon ourselves when we hear texts like this? Is God unjust to call for this genocide? Such as the Canaanites or here the Amalekites. We need to understand that oftentimes we bring our own preconceived notions to the Scriptures. We bring our own Western individualistic ways to the Scriptures. But God does not deal just with individuals, but He deals with us covenantally. He deals with people in general. Those who are in Adam are sinful. They have inherited His sinful habits, his nature. I wasn't there when Adam sinned in the garden. Why should I be responsible for his sin? Well, because God works covenantally. And all of humanity was contained in Adam when he sinned and fell from God. And therefore, all of us are deserving of God's wrath and the judgment for that sin, that penalty, which is death. All of humanity that is descended from Adam, which is to say everyone deserves this kind of destruction, this kind of judgment. But you see, God God doesn't just stop there, does He? What happens when Adam and Eve sin? He forgives them. There are consequences. They are cast 
out of the garden of His presence because He doesn't want them to stay in that condition, but He clothes their shame and nakedness. And He announces the good news of the Gospel that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of that serpent that led to that sin. You see, Christ also works covenantally. I wasn't there when Christ was crucified. I didn't see Him die. But nevertheless, by faith, trusting that He died as my substitute, I am included in a new covenant people. Not under that old Adam with death, under destruction and the wrath of God, but now this new humanity in Christ, I have been forgiven. My sins have been washed away. I've been reconciled to God. That's the good news of the gospel. But the thing that we need to remember is that none of us deserve that. I'm not standing in Christ because I'm a good person, because somehow I've made enough effort that I've somehow got the eye of God and I've earned something of His favor. All of it is of grace. And we experience it by faith alone through Christ, through the Spirit. I want to explain something. I don't want to um, read the whole text, but from Romans 19, Paul gives us kind of a, a grid to look out at the world and see the ways that sin works in communities, covenantally, in people groups, and in individuals as well. You see, the logic is that everyone, all of humanity, knows that there is a God. They know that God has created all things. His power, the orderliness, all of it is made manifest in creation so that they are without excuse. But what do they do with that? They know that there is a God, but they exchange that truth for a lie. And they serve and worship the creature rather than the Creator. And in in exchanging that truth for a lie, God gives them over to that lie so that they begin in their worship of the creature to be debased in their mind. And then Paul lists all these sins going from bad to worse as a culture rejects the truth of who God is and how He's to be worshipped. That culture devolves to be more and more godless. Because, you see, in God's common grace, He restrains sin. Common grace is that restraining power of God so that we don't all, as individuals and as a culture, become as worse as we could be. We don't become as bad as we could be. He restrains sinful men. But when they exchange the truth of God for a lie, He removes His restraining power. He allows them to be as bad as they could be, until they get worse and worse and more and more godless. And their culture is given over and deserving of the wrath of God in judgment. And this is what's taken place with the Canaanites and the Amalekites. They are wicked. They have uh, human sacrifices. They are idolatrous. They worship other gods. And Israel is like God's civil magistrate. You see, if somebody uh, does a crime, it would be completely wrong for me, as just an individual, to go and execute justice against them. Say my, my a neighbor 
is guilty of some crime that deserves the death penalty. It would be completely wrong for me to go and kill him. I would be murdering, right? But the same job, the same task of executing judgment is completely lawful for the civil magistrate. He may, in fact, execute judgment against that person by using the death penalty. Do you see the difference? Israel is like that. They have been called as and to execute God's justice on a people. They are his tool to do that. Now, this call is not given just indiscriminately. It's not universal. Other nations may not say, okay, now we want to go in and strike the Amalekites. That would be wrong. It's given to a particular people at a particular time, a very particular call to these only. In other ways where they were fighting to expand their territory, Israel did not wipe out everything. They might have killed a lot of the fighting men, but they spared the women and children. And they kept a lot of the plunder and included it in their kingdom. So they show that they know that their uh, limits of executing God's justice are circumscribed. But God continues to work in cultures. He continues to mete out His judgment in people groups. And this is why we have things like whole people groups who have been wiped out completely. We don't know exactly what leads to it, except that we know that they have are have uh, separated themselves from God. And I'm thinking of the Aztecs with their human sacrifices that mirrored some of these Canaanite practices. Or even the Romans, who were so decadent and godless in their latter days, God allowed them to be overthrown. And we find similar situation in America, right? We, we find that the farther we move away from the truths of God's Word, the more we devolve into a debased mind, we become more barbaric, do we not? As we have covered ourselves with the blood of millions of aborted babies, and we are living in a time of rampant sexual immorality. There seems to be almost no taboos left for us to break. We need to be on guard because God still interacts in cultures and peoples to execute justice against them. So we need not look down our noses at the Amalekites, but we need just look outside our doors. And it's a cautionary tale that we should be concerned with following the truth, not exchanging the truth for a lie, not suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But we see another thing. We see that God gave Saul very specific instructions. And I want you to notice Over and over again, the language that is used. Listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the voice of the Lord. And then when it comes time to it, what does Saul listen to? The voice of the people. Not the voice of the Lord. He's not hearing the words of God. And in fact, it's even a little bit camouflaged in in the regrets that God has that Saul did not perform my commandments, but that is actually listen to my voice. He did not listen to the voice of the Lord and follow the mission that God had given him. Saul fails in his mission. We see that he he gathers all the army, and it's the battle is 
almost nondescript. There's nothing detailing all of it, just that they wiped out all the Amalekites from this area to this area, which is all of their territory, and they spared the Kenites. Now, the Kenites were descendants of Cain, and their most famous is probably Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. They come up with Israel in the Exodus, no doubt to explain to them how to live as nomads. And they give them some wisdom about uh, sojourning before they come in and take possession of the promised land. They dealt kindly with Israel, and so Israel in turn deals kindly with them and spares them. But that's not all that Paul spares, or Saul spares. He also spares Agag. And the people and Saul spare all the best of the livestock. Now you can... You can imagine how tempting this is, right? You are a subsistence agrarian culture. You live by your livestock, and then you come into a lot of it, and now God just wants you to kill it all? I mean, why should, why should we not benefit from this? We could just pad our pockets a little bit, and, and on top of that, we'll save some to sacrifice to God. I think he's going to be fine with that deal. So, we'll devote all the people to destruction and everything that's worthless, but we'll keep the good stuff. And that's exactly what they did. And it's, it's sort of sparse in its telling, but it gets to verse 10 and it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, we're going to look more closely at this regret that God has, which some of your translations might actually translate as repent. The Lord repented that he made Saul king. So we're going to look at God's repentance with, when we look at Saul's repentance or his feigned repentance in verse 24. But I want just to note that Samuel gets angry. Why do you think he gets angry? Well, think about it. The nation wants a king, but God is their king. And Samuel is offended by that. And finally, when he does get on board and say, okay, we'll give you a king, they say, we want a king like the nations. Well, what does God give them? He gives them a king like the nations. He gives them Saul, exactly what they wanted. But God is showing us through this that that's not the way he operates. That appearances are not always what we should be judging by. And we'll see that when we come to the text of picking David. Samuel, after receiving this word from the Lord, takes off to find Saul. What's Saul doing? He's building statues to himself. He's setting up a monument to parade for all the people to see. Look how great I am. I have followed the commands of the Lord. And when Samuel finally catches up, to him in Gilgal, Saul says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. How bold and audacious to speak to the, to the prophet in that way. And it's exactly opposite of what the Lord said of Saul. Why does the Lord reject him? Because he failed to obey, to perform his commands. And so Samuel responds somewhat facetiously, what, what is that sound I hear? 
I hear all this bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen. Why have you disobeyed the command of the Lord? Why have you kept all this plunder? And then Saul, you know, still confident, not accepting any responsibility. Oh, that. That's for your God. We kept that for your God. Don't even worry about that. The people thought it would be a good idea not to be wasteful. We just want to be good stewards of what God has given us. So, I mean, the Amalekites, they got such nice stuff. The lambs and the oxen, donkeys, there's lots of good to be preserved there. So, yeah, we devoted the bad stuff to destruction, but we kept what was good. But we did it for the Lord. We have great intentions. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord, and we're sure he's going to be pleased with our effort. And Samuel says, enough. Stop, he says. I'm tired of hearing you talk in this glib way where you don't reverence the Almighty God, where you don't listen to His voice, where you instead listen to the voice of the people. He says, I will tell you what the Lord says. And then he recounts some of Saul's history, what God has done for him, who he is. Then, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Again, 